Quantspeak, expert insights from quants for quants. Welcome to Quantspeak, a new podcast from the CQF Institute at Fitch Learning. Hi, I'm Dan Tudball, editor of Wilmot Magazine, and this is Quantspeak. As we record this today, we're just a few weeks out from the first Quant Insights Conference of the year, which will be looking at portfolio management in quant finance. The event is on the 23rd of March, and naturally, this is something you should be attending. Our guest today, Rene Yao, will be participating in a panel on developments and applications in explainable ML in portfolio management. A particular focus of the panel will be on explainable machine learning, XML, in the context of portfolio management. XML refers to the ability of a machine learning model to provide clear and transparent explanations of its predictions and decisions. This is becoming increasingly important as more and more financial institutions are using machine learning algorithms to make investment decisions. The discussion will explore the current state of XML in portfolio management, especially trust in the decision-making process, as well as its limitations. Uh, Rene Yao is the founder of Neo IV Capital Management, a quantitative hedge fund manager now in its eighth year that focuses on trading liquid, publicly traded equity securities via artificial intelligence strategies. Welcome, Rene. Thank you for the kind introduction. It's my pleasure to attend the conference and share uh, my view and how to apply that in our trading um, into the uh, financial market. That's great, Rene. Thank you so much. It's the portfolio management concerts, uh, conference has really become sort of a cornerstone of the annual program. And it's always very well attended. And I think that this particular panel is really going to be an interesting one for the audience. I, I wanted to start off right at the beginning, really, uh, professionally for you. You're, you're a graduate of the University of Kansas and have an MA in statistics from Columbia. Can you tell us a bit about the motivations behind your taking that academic path and when it was that you decided a career in finance was for you? Yeah. <laughs> when I entered Columbia uh, for my graduate study, my goal is to become a professor in applied math field. Um, however, because uh, Columbia is based in New York City. So naturally there are so many um, information about how financial market uh, works, including both the Southside banks and the hedge fund. And then uh, the third year during my study, I received a call from a recruiter asking if I'm interested in interview one of the top hedge fund. Um, because I'm curious about how the hedge fund world works. I said, yeah, why not? And then I started my first job from Citadel. Right, and, and what a place to start. You were saying that you were actually sort of more inclined towards an academic career at that point when, when you were actually studying. And it's really sort of, I mean, what you're saying is it's, it's basically an environmental factor just being in New York that opened up that opportunity to you. But that leaning towards an, academ an academic approach to things, 
is something more than a professional choice. So what, what would you say, was there something within you that, that sort of wanted to teach, wanted to research, perhaps? Yeah, sure. So I've been always interested in learning how to apply my what I learned at school into the application of the real world. So that's when um, I learned how, say, some of the hedge fund funders, they were able to apply uh, what they learned from school into the trading and actually realize that um, becomes so fascinating to me. Um, a career path as academic, prof- as academic professor is, is definitely uh, something similar. However, it's more on the theoretical side where a career on Wall Street is sort of doing something similar, however, on the more practical side. So it's easier to see how to like to see an immediate result from what you learned. So I think that's what makes me more interested in how to apply what I learned in school into the real, real financial market. Absolutely. You've described yourself as a third generation quant. What is it that you think you have inherited from the first two generations? That's a very good question. So um, when I entered Citadel, um, I would say we're still a, a second generation quant in a sense that um, we're trying to learn from a lot of historic data and see if there's any patterns in the historic data. And uh, hopefully the same pattern will still hold in the future. So that's how we learn uh, to generate new RFAs, new ideas in over quant trading back then. However, um, what we are doing currently now is different from that in a sense that uh, instead of relying on human power, trying to come up with new RFAs, new ideas, we are training this AI system. So the system will automatically come up with new RFAs and new ideas for us. And that's the main difference between the second generation quant and the third generation quant. Let's talk a bit about that first job at Citadel. What a place to start. And what sorts of learnings do you think you've taken from that experience that's informed the rest of your career trajectory? Sure. Of course, I learned many things from Citadel. I think um, some of the most important aspect is how to run a portfolio, how to control your risk, how to evaluate your um, risk exposures and downside protections, all of that portfolio construction skills together with uh, the method of how to come up with new RFAs, new ideas um, are what I learned um, and great knowledge I've inherited throughout the entire of my career. So NeoIV's been running for about eight years now. Congratulations on that. That in itself is, a, is an achievement, right? So tracking back, you would have entered the markets 
around about when you graduated and entered Citadel, which, which year was that? 2010. 2010. So at that point, we were two years into the global financial crisis. The paradigm had shifted for quantitative finance thinking. We can sort of see 2008 as a sort of a, a wall that delineates two very distinct phases in the development of quantitative finance, the application of it. That period prior was, was very much sell-side led in terms of innovation. It was very, uh, that period before 2008 was very much about structured instruments, about exotic products, and mm -hmm. so on. That period after 2008, which we are still in that mode now, we're having to deal now with the inflationary aspects of the economy post-COVID and so on. But we can still see uh, a definite line from 2008 to this point. There's a, a definite narrative there. Part of that narrative was very much the rise of the significance of machine learning and artificial intelligence throughout all industries. And as an observer, the way in which that has penetrated the consciousness of the financial industry has been very interesting to observe. There have been a lot of motivational factors that have assisted the rise of the adoption and faith in, in machine learning as, as a way forward. When was it that you personally realized that machine learning was going to be a game changer for finance? Um, yes. So I think machine learning sort of becomes a buzzword for today. Like everyone manager is claiming they're using machine learning. Um, but if you think about the history of machine learning, like the, the very elementary machine learning probably dates back to 1950s, where people use simple mathematical skills like principal component analysis, logistic regression to try to train a computer to find some patterns in the historic data. Sure. And then later, um, there are more sophisticated approach like support vector machine, random forest, artificial, narrow, artificial neural network. All of that are what we consider to be um, traditional machine learning approach. Like a good example of that approach will be IBM's Deep Blue algo, an algo designed by IBM uh, for the Russian chess game. Now, they, the difference of the chess game compared to the Go game is for chess game, you have finite possible solution set. So you can literally use the machine to do a brutal force search to help you navigate all possibilities. And then you can pick the highest winning probability one. And however, we know that's not how financial market works. Like the financial market has infinite possibilities just like the Go game does. So that's why we consider when Google published their AlphaGo paper in 2016, um, we consider that to be a real game changer in the AI or machine learning history, because that's the first time 
when the researchers were able to train the machine to truly think and analysis like human instead of just do data mining or pattern recognition from historic data. So that is in my personal experience when I feel that machine learning or AI could be a game changer. Now your background was in statistics. To rewind a little bit, as an observer, one of my observations about machine learning and the community of researchers that has grown up around that, that has been empowered by industry interest. Uh, one of my observations is that there seems to be a, a relearning process for people who are machine learning researchers per se, that when you look at fora for machine learning uh, researchers, a number of questions come up about, about things which uh, require the answer actually already exists in the context of traditional statistical uh, research and so on, the history of financial research. So in terms of the relationship between the application of machine learning and those who apply it now and the, the heritage of the field of statistics from which you come, how do you see the relationship between the two? Do you see machine learning as a natural progression for statistics, a tool, uh, or do you see it in some other way? That's a very good question. I, I definitely think there's some heritage coming from traditional statistic approach. For example, um, naive base model, like very elementary statistical kind of um, approach model, but it kind of start the fundamental learning methodology in terms of how machine learning works. Like you have to train the machine with a lot of historic data and you hopefully find some patterns in the historic data uh, by training the machine. And then hopefully the same pattern that the machine recognized from the history will also uh, hold in the future. So that's how kind of traditional statistic model works. Now, some of the modern machine learning technique uh, still hold the same pattern or still hold the same learning methodology. For example, like artificial neural network or uh, random forest they will follow the same learning pattern in a sense that they're still looking at historic data. They're still hoping there will be some pattern recognized from the historic data and the same pattern will still hold in the future. So that kind of inheritance from the traditional statistical kind of approach definitely goes through the uh, traditional machine learning methodology as well. And even in the modern AI space, I would say, um, part of the AI learning um, is also from looking at historic data. Like for example, in Google's um, AlphaGo paper, which they published in 2016, um, they use a combination of um, traditional machine learning approach, which is looking at humans' uh, historic Go play record and combined 
with this modern AI approach. Now in 2017, in another paper they published, which is called AlphaGo Zero, they no longer use any historic human play Go record, and instead use this pure analytical learning ability to teach the machine how to play the Go game. So you can definitely see um, a history or of patterns from the evolution of the machine learning uh, methodologies. I think that's a good point at which we should move to the topic of the panel that you're participating in. Can you walk us through the issues around explainable machine learning when it comes to portfolio management? <laughs> that's a tough question. Now, one of the biggest challenge for AI is its interpretability, meaning how do, you, uh, how do you explain why the machine makes such a decision? Like for example, during the um, AlphaGo game um, versus the, the, the Korean uh, Go championship, um, the 37th move, almost all the top Go player don't understand why the AlphaGo algo decides to make that move. However, right. later, that move has become a very important milestone in deciding the result of the game. Um, so that has been a similar challenge in applying AI in the financial market as well. If you ask me exactly like what kind of factors are there or what are the weight of each of the information we put into the AI models are, for each of the different AI models, I wouldn't be able to tell you because if I do, I don't need to run this sophisticated machine learning algos. I can sure. simply run a linear regression and tell you what are the contributions of each factors. The, the power of AI is to be able to realize that certain informations are not interacting with each other in a linearly fashion. It's just like how our brain structure like, like it's a net structure and each information can have interactions with many other different informations. So it's not exactly linear. Instead, it's a net structure that's the, which is more sophisticated. And that's why uh, difficult to explain as to how each of the informations are kind of display or interact with each other. Um, however, that's just the nature of AI or nature of how our brain structure looks like. Uh, we just have to kind of understand on the high level why certain informations are useful by the AI algo and why certain informations are not useful. And I think that will be sufficient enough um, to give us some comfort as to why the AI algo um, is making certain decisions. That's a very pragmatic answer, I think. And, and pragmatism really ought to be the cornerstone of, uh, of, the, of finance, really, given what we're dealing with. Do you think that um, it's more of an issue for people who, it's more of an issue sort of for the boardroom and the auditor rather than the researcher themselves? 
I that's a tough question to answer. I think in general, people tend to deny what like the things they don't understand, right? Like if we are learning something new, we will naturally feel uncomfortable in accepting it. However, as more and more applications of AI has stepping over life, changing over daily lives, um, like the chat GPT, like the Tesla's auto drive, um, people began to more and more realize how important AI is. And that's become more acceptable uh, for some of the short, uh, like shortcomings for AI, like interpretability. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, you, you founded Neo-Ivy and the decision to go ahead and set up your own firm, it, it can't have been taken lightly. What are your reflections on that period in your career? Because I'm sure many of our listeners are also interested in setting something up for themselves at some point in their futures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the decision, the decision to start uh, your own firm is never easy. There are so many factors to be taken uh, considered. Uh, what's making, what's driving my decision back then was we are truly a believer of the modern AI and its applications in the financial market. However, the concept was not easily accepted by some of the traditional quant managers, nor the infrastructure would support such approach. So in order for us to truly implement what we believe, uh, we have to build a whole system from scratch, which is completely different from uh, the legacy system that are widely ex existed at some of the um, second generation quant firms. So I think that's why uh, that ultimately drives our decision to set up our own firm. As a woman in finance, what's your take on the current environment in the industry for women in comparison to when you started out? Well, <laughs> I always love to see more women uh, come out and, and become taking more senior positions in this uh, financial business. Um, whenever I go to a conference or say a seminar, there's always more um, male participant compared to females. So that's why we think uh, women and minorities are always underrepresented. Um, so we always encourage and try to do our best to promote um, the women and minorities to pursue their, their dreams and, and to um, facilitate their career in the financial market. In that regard, I mean, over, over the last uh, decade and a half, were you fortunate enough to, to have role models yourself within that definition? Who would you point to as people that you admire in the industry that are representative in, in this more open way? Uh, there are definitely many role models and definitely many 
um, good examples in terms of female managers uh, that I look up to and learn a great deal from. Um, I probably wouldn't name them uh, before getting their permissions, <laughs> but I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, but I would say there are many successful uh, female leaders in this uh, financial market. And uh, a lot of the organizations also helps promote uh, women and minorities. Um, like today, a lot of the um, pensions and endowment like investors would have this diversified program, DEI program, ESG program that would help the, um, the women and minorities. Uh, and we have many associations which are designed for women and minority managers. I think all of that can be very helpful in promoting um, women in this business. Thank you very much, Renee. Um, final question, in terms of the, the panel that you're gonna be participating in, firstly, what was it that drew you to actually agree to participate in the panel? And secondly, what do you hope that the discussion is going to be able to provide in terms of takeaways for, for the audience? I've always been a believer of AI and its applications in the financial market. So I would like to share my view in terms of how we can apply AI in the financial market. Uh, and because AI is a very new subject and very new technique, um, many people, like every people will probably have their own different opinions. So I would like to share and exchange ideas with my fellow uh, practitioners in terms of how they view AI and how they could apply AI in the financial market. So that's what drives me most in terms of uh, participating in this conference. And of course, um, it's been an honor to be invited to uh, be part of the panel. Um, and because I know you are a very um, well-respected organization as well. So thank you for giving me this great opportunity. Thank you, thank you, Renee. I um, complete the side actually, just to do with AI. Probably about six months ago, I started to wonder what effect AI was having on my hypothalamus. <laughs> because this is just in the context of using Google Maps for driving. And I remember maybe about eight to 10 years ago when I first started using Google Maps for driving, I used it as a sort of a form of uh, competition between myself and the, and the, the algorithm. Because, uh, you know, I just wanted to see whether or not I could actually get to the location faster by using a different route than the one that was actually recommended by Google Maps. And in the early days, I actually found that there were a few occasions when I actually could beat the, the computer. But then over the years, I found myself more and more dependent on the navigation. And then about six months ago, I realized that in comparison to how knowledgeable I was about the general surroundings and the general geography of locations that prior to that I had been very familiar with, 
didn't exist anymore. And um, so I actually stopped using Google Maps. I would use it before I set out on my journey just to check the traffic. But then after that, I would, I would go ahead. And it was funny because I don't know if it was pure coincidence or not. I felt like I was picking up much more useful information on my journeys than I was when I was using navigation. So although the algorithm was helping me to achieve my primary goal, which was to get from A to B, I had definitely lost perhaps what you might call associated uh, information, which I would actually use in the context of future, future journeys, and also the overall appreciation of actually being immersed in the real world rather than feeling somewhat like a cybernetic organism, which was uh, utilizing skills or rather outsourcing aspects of my own mental resources, like my hypothalamus, for example, to, mm. to the computer. As a person who works in artificial intelligence and so on, do you think that this is a valid observation about the trajectory that we're on? That's an interesting observation. I think I would definitely agree with you um, on some aspect of that because um, what AI is doing, in our opinion, is trying to automatic the human's learning process. So in a sense, we're not hiring hundreds of people trying to come up with new artifacts, new ideas, but instead we're training this AI algo to do what the human used to do. And of course the AIs would have so much advantages compared to human, like they are much faster in terms of computing speed. They can work 24 seven nonstop. Uh, however, there are many things that um, we wouldn't do um, without like we would have to do ourselves without the existence of AI. So that can be pros and cons, but in my experience, I think in general, the application of AI uh, does make my life much easier. Like for example, if I want to run a quantitative hedge fund um, using the traditional second generation quant business model, I probably need to hire a large team size in order to maintain my uh, long-term sustainable growth to keep my competitive edge. And also I probably need to have uh, a large say AUM base in order to support a lot of the operations and data cost. However, with the help of modern AI, we are able to run new IV at a very efficient way um, so that we don't need to maintain a large, say, um, AUM size in order to uh, keep the business running uh, for long terms. So I definitely agree. There are things that we um, give up through applying AI, but in my experience, there are definitely more that we gained by using AI. 
So that's why I, I believe that AI could truly be the future of financial investment. Absolutely. And I, and I think that that is uh, inevitability. Absolutely, it is. Thank you once again, Renee. To our listeners, the, the conference is coming up on the 23rd of March. It's free for CQF Institute members to attend. And as I always remind you, uh, membership of the CQF Institute is free as well. So you really have no excuse. And if not, the algorithm will find you and it will bring you along by force. I promise. Thank you for listening to QuantSpeak. Don't forget to subscribe and do sign up to the CQF Institute for more insights into quant finance.